Good to see you this morning. Hope you guys are doing well. So like Pastor Mark said, we will be in Romans 9, so you can turn there now. We'll jump in here in a few minutes. Anyone in here just love the Old Testament? Like you can't wait for February, not not because of the, the Super Bowl um, or Valentine's Day or the birth of your third child, but, but that's when you hit Leviticus in your Bible reading plan. If you're anything like me, you, you can't get enough of Philippians, right, and the Gospel of John, but it can be tough to trek our way through the book of Numbers, right? I mean, Zephaniah, did we even know that, that that's, not a, that's not a prescription drug, but a minor prophet? Well, a few years back, a, a popular book came out trying to help Christians navigate this, this post-Christian world. The question being raised was, what does the church need to do? With church attendance on the decline, secularism on the rise, what does the church need to do? The answer this author proposed was ditch the Old Testament. He says when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. He says when it comes to stumbling blocks in the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. And so his call to pastors and church leaders was, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Christ from all things Old Testament. Now, I appreciate his motives, right? A, a, a desire to see people in this post-Christian world come to Christ. So let's remove stumbling blocks. I'm all about it. And even theologically, as we'll see in our text this morning, Jesus does usher in a new era of redemptive history. But to ditch the Old Testament, that's a big claim. When Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, or, or Peter, or any of the apostles, preached the gospel, what did they use? Often they would start by going into the Jewish synagogue, and they would reason with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament. They couldn't just hand someone the gospel of John. Or lead someone down the Romans road, ending with an invitation to ask Christ into their heart and pray the sinner's prayer. No, instead they had the Old Testament scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have one of Paul's clearest gospel proclamations. And what does he say? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In 2 Timothy, the beloved passage about the Bible's inspiration, right? Paul says scripture is God-breathed. In context, he's talking about the Old Testament, that the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation. Or when Jesus himself raises from the dead and is walking on the road to Emmaus with some of his disciples who don't recognize him, what does he do? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is hard and uncomfortable and even confusing as some passages are. And so I understand the temptation to ditch it. 
but ultimately understood correctly. The Old Testament gives us the, the full, unfiltered story of redemption, and it all testifies to Christ. If we ditch the Old Testament, we ditch the Christ of the Old Testament. We ditch our history as God's people in God's story. Our passage this morning, Romans chapter 9, verse 30, moving through Romans 10, verse 4, I believe is is monumental for us if we want to know how to put our Bibles together, Old and New Testaments. How to see that this is actually one big unfolding story that climaxes in Christ. Now, I guess most of us in here aren't tempted to throw away, throw away our Old Testaments, two-thirds of our Bible. We know better than that. But we still have big problems if we don't know the storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and where we find our place in it. The Jews, as we're about to see, missed their own Messiah, even though he's everywhere in their sacred scriptures. And believe it or not, we can actually make the same mistake that they did. Not by rejecting the Messiah, right? We're we're Christians. We just worshiped about Jesus. But by not understanding how the Bible unfolds, we can miss our participation into God's grand story. Soren Kierkegaard speaking to the church in Denmark in the mid-1800s, said something that I think is still relevant today. I know this is my temptation as I live out my Christian life. He said, Christianity, that is the Christianity of the New Testament, does not exist. Christianity in Denmark is enjoyment of life, tranquilized by the assurance that the thing about eternity is settled. And then he says, I will not partake in what is known as official Christianity. Now that can be unsettling, maybe even a little harsh. But this is what can easily happen when we don't enter into participation with God in his drama of redemption. Which is much more exhilarating than what the American dream has to offer. And it's in this drama of redemption that we get to live out the good life as God intends. I believe Paul is going to show us this morning that the word of God has not failed. The people of God, on the other hand, have failed to rightly understand and apply God's word. So if you're not already there, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 30. What shall we say then? Let's stop here for a second. Paul is picking up on where he left off last week. He's he's still making the case from verse 6 that the word of God has not failed. Last week we saw Paul making the case for a a true Israel. He said that, that not all Israel is Israel, but rather by his sovereign Electing mercy and grace, he chooses whomever he wills. But Paul is not quite finishing defending the reliability of God's word. 
There's still an elephant in the room. The Jews, by and large, have rejected their own Messiah. How does this coincide with Israel's scriptures? All the while, the gospel of this crucified Jewish Messiah is spreading like wildfire to the Gentiles. Let's keep reading. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Before Paul gets into Israel's rejection, he explains the reason why the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are being incorporated into the people of God. And it's through faith. As we know, as we've been in the book of Romans for a while now, we know Paul has spent a lot of time in this letter talking about faith, right? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This doesn't mean that there are no Gentiles who are pursuing a pious life, moral living. What Paul is saying, that the Gentiles who were not seeking right standing with Yahweh, Israel's God, by the doing of the Torah, the law, have actually received right standing with Yahweh, Israel's God. And they did it through faith. Nothing they did, but rather trust in Christ and God's promises. Allegiance shifting to Jesus, their new king. Verse 31. But Israel, so he's talking about ethnic Jews now. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it, was, as if it were based on works. This is devastating. The Jews are not being condemned for pursuing the law. God gave them the law. The law was a good thing. They're being condemned because they used the law as a set of demands by which they could find favor and right standing with God. And that was never the law's purpose. The law set Israel apart as God's unique people. The law showed Israel their sin and gave them many shadows and types of what was to come as they were to live by faith in God's covenant promises. Old Testament saints like David weren't saved by perfect law keeping. It's good news for King David, right? They were saved by grace through faith in a future Messiah. Trusting that God would make good on his promises. Let's keep reading the passage. Commenters say, commenters say verse 33 is the most painful part of Paul's argument. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul's now using the Jewish scriptures to explain the Jewish plight. He does this by combining two passages. Don't try this at home unless you're an apostle. But he, he, he takes um, Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 to explain that Israel's fall was Christological. Meaning that by missing Christ... Israel has tripped over her own Savior. 
God himself set a stone, namely Jesus, in Zion. And Israel, God's chosen people, the ones who should have been longing for the long-anticipated Messiah, stumbled over him. Matter of fact, we see from these Old Testament quotations that God's word foretold Israel's rejection as her Messiah. The word of God has not failed, Paul is saying. The people of God, on the other hand, have failed to understand and apply God's word. So my name is Rick Eisenberg. If you haven't noticed, I have an extremely Jewish last name. In in 2019, my brother, who's also a Christian, a friend of ours who came along as our tour guide, and myself um, went to Israel during Holy Week with my dad. My dad, who paid for the, the whole trip for all of us. This was like the top of his bucket list. Um, and and, and, and he, 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 as we got closer to, to the trip, I, I started to think, this is it. Lord, use this trip to open up my dad's eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Israel. Our longing and prayer that but that my dad, after experiencing the Holy Land, reading from, from the Old and New Testaments with a company of Christians, would repent of his sin and turn to Israel's Messiah in faith. The trip had, had its ups and downs, like eating shawarma after a, a full day in Jerusalem. Like, pfft, that was up there. But then the next day was a downer. Right, we, we, we were walking through the Holocaust Museum and reading some of the words written by some of my heroes about Jews, like St. Augustine and, and Martin Luther. We've been quoting Luther a ton in Romans, and rightfully so. But man, some of the things he said at the end of his life about Jews, eventually used by Hitler as propaganda during Nazi Germany, Mind-blowing. But even this wasn't the ultimate stumbling block for my dad. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the end of the trip. One day in particular, an amazing day in Capernaum. We are kind of following the steps of Christ, and so we read the Sermon on the Mount in, in its probable location. We went down by the shore, and we read um, some of the parables where Jesus might have taught them. And we even read uh, John chapter 6 in the ruins of the synagogue where Jesus would have spoke these words. The whole time, I'm silently praying that God would move on my dad. That night, we are eating dinner just off the Sea of Galilee when my dad, one of the sweetest guys I know, who, who, who wears his, his heart on his sleeve, out of nowhere said something like this, At the end of the day, fellas, Jesus, Jesus is a very intriguing figure in history. But I just can't get behind the fact that my family, solid Jews, good people, my mom, my dad, sister, aunts, uncles, grandparents, they will not experience eternal life because they reject or have rejected Christ. 
as much as I love my dad and I wish in these moments I could just tell him, no, dad, it's okay. They're okay. Everyone's saved. I, I can't. And Paul is clear in this passage, in this painful passage that Israel has stumbled over its savior. They have rejected Christ, which, which, which prompts Paul not to shake his head and yell, dumb Jews, and move on like some have in church history. No, look at Paul's response to Israel's unbelief and damnation. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, or better translation, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now more uh, more on the eventual outcome of Paul's prayer and Israel's future will come in Romans 11. But do you see Paul's heart? It's like we saw last week when he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I was cut off from God that they may be brought in. Golly, right? The Jews who have rejected Christ. The Jews who are persecuting Paul. The Jews who literally stoned him and thought he was dead. Who are constantly bringing trouble into his life and trying to end his ministry. What is Paul's response to the Jews' rejection of Jesus? My heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. Before we move on, we need Paul's heart, church. Don't you need Paul's heart? In, in, in these polarizing times, I definitely need Paul's heart. I don't think any of us has an enemy like the Jewish people were to Paul during his entire ministry. And yet, how do we respond to those who aren't in our tribe, who don't think like we think? Like, what is your heart's desire for people who are living a life you don't approve of? What is your heart's desire for your boss who you can't stand or your coworkers who are so opposed to Christ? What is your heart's desire for those who disagree with you on politics, religion, children's education, social justice, the vaccine? What is your heart's desire even for Christians who disagree with you on secondary issues? Oh, God, give us a heart like Paul's that, that break for any and all of your image bearers. Let us not simply have Paul's theology. God, give us a heart for people. This kind of heart, this kind of gospel culture only happens when we understand, when we truly understand the gospel of Romans 9. <laughs> We did nothing. God freely chose us by grace. We have to be the most humble, people-loving community that exists. Amen? Paul continues in verse 2 with how the Jews missed their Messiah. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In verses 2 and 3, Paul is picking up on what he just said a few verses back. The Jews were seeking justification, righteousness by works. And it's interesting to note, Paul is not condemning them simply as an outsider. He's speaking as a former Pharisee who's been there himself. Listen to what he says about his, his former life in Philippians. It should be up on the screen here. Circumcised on the eighth day, so Paul is, is going to be giving his, his Jewish credentials, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having, here it comes, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now you can't knock these Jews for their zeal. It was just misplaced. Not according to knowledge, Paul says. Mark and I talked this week about how usually in the Old Testament we see the majority of Israel not zealously pursuing the law, but rather zealously pursuing physical idols, right? Like when Moses goes away to meet with God, they create a, a golden calf. But in the silent years, the, the time in between the Testaments, we have different Jewish sects that start to come on the scene. Jewish theology was not monolithic, and so different groups emphasized different works as they were pursuing this righteousness, this right standing with God. You had the, the, the Pharisees and their priestly purity, the zealots and their sacred violence, the Essenes and, and their cultic purity and calendar regulations. You had the, the Sadducees and their sacrifices and temple purity. With so many zealous groups, how could a people, a people who memorize full books of the Bible, and we're not talking Philemon, we're talking like Genesis through Deuteronomy kind of memorization, zealous for God. How could a people be ignorant of the righteousness of God? Our text says they did not submit to God's righteousness. New Testament scholar Doug Moose says this is God's own righteousness in action. Mike Bird says, submit to God's righteousness. Here it is not a gift or even something imputed. One receives a gift. One does not submit to it. Here God's righteousness signifies his saving action. They knew a lot. They knew the scriptures extremely well. These scriptures had the potential to make them wise for salvation but because their relationship with god was based on self-righteousness they missed the one thing that the scriptures were pointing to 
They missed Jesus. And in missing Jesus, they missed the righteousness that comes from God through faith. The entire word of God, including the law, was waiting for its intended goal, its purpose. This is what Israel missed. Look at verse 4, our final verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end, or in the Greek, the telos, the, the culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The church, Jews and Gentiles, are righteous apart from the works of the law. How? Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. We freely received this grace, this gift of righteousness. Now, I told you earlier that that we might not miss the Messiah in the same way that the Jews in Paul's day did. But if we don't understand how to put our Bibles together, we have the potential in our ignorance to not submit to God's righteousness, his saving action in this drama of redemption. And instead of living out of God's ideal of the good life, participating in what he is up to, we, like the Jews, can pursue some really good things, all the while missing the main thing. Verse 4 has some huge implications for how we bridge the gap between the Old and New Testament. And not only how we understand God's word, but how we apply it and how we live. So let me grab a prop. I didn't bring my Tupperware. I don't have enough. But I got an hourglass, all right? So check out the hourglass. I want us to think of the entire. I want I want us to think of the hourglass as the entire canon. So the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, an hourglass. The whole Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, is the top portion of our hourglass and funnels down to Christ. He's the middle. Old Testament people like like Adam, Noah, Israel, David. Institutions like the temple and the Sabbath. Historical events like the Exodus. The entire Mosaic law, like Paul is talking about in our passage. All the promises. All of them. Everything funnels to Jesus. He's the climax of redemptive history. Christ is the end. He's the telos. He's the culmination of the law. And so the entire New Testament, the, the, the bottom portion of our hourglass, opens up and expands from Christ. So no, we don't ditch the Old Testament. We learn to read the scriptures with our Jesus lenses on. Some things he abolishes. Other things remain intact. But Christ is the culmination, not only of the law, but of all redemptive history. And we need to see how the scriptures apply to us in light of its ultimate goal, Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says all the promises of God, speaking of all Old Testament promises, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Most of us, at least the adults in here, we drive cars. I, I, I only live seven minutes away from my workplace, but, but it would be, it'd, it'd be, it'd be foolish if I did not have a ride to work, especially in the wintertime. But that's because I live in 2022 and not 1805. We as God's people live in an amazing era of redemptive history. And it's not because we have the metaverse. With the end of the law came an end to an era. So where exactly are we? As I land the plane This morning, let's find where we are so we can be who we are. We can live the good life as God intends. Now, there are many ways to trace themes across the storyline of Scripture. This is the discipline of of, uh, biblical theology. But when dealing with the themes of Scripture, you have to start even more foundational than that. We need a storyline structure. The most prominent storyline structure to follow as we move our way from Genesis to Revelation is creation, uh, creation, redemption, sorry, creation, fall, that's a big one, creation, fall, redemption, um, new creation. I was reading a book this week by Tony Morita, and I like his even better. It'll be up on the screen. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, mission, new creation. So let's work through these real quick, keeping in mind that Christ is the telos, the end. Creation. Out of nothing, God created everything. He spoke it into existence. And the pinnacle of his creation, male and female. Humans created in his image. God dwelling with his people. In Eden, no sin, Perfect fellowship with God. Paradise. Next we have the fall. Adam and Eve, our great, great grandparents, chose to worship themselves instead of their creator. And sin was brought into the world. All the pain that life brings from last week to last year and beyond can be traced back to that day. And like we learned earlier in Romans, Adam was our representative. We're all born into sin. Next, promise. God promised after the fall in the garden that he would bring a redeemer through the seed of the woman who would make all things new. This promise was to be believed by faith. This is the promise that the Jews missed as they were too narrowly focused on establishing their own righteousness. Next, redemption. The the seed of the woman came. God took on flesh and dwelt among his people again. But the penalty of sin given back in the Garden of Eden was death. Jesus, the God-man, Israel's Messiah, after living the sinless life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve. Brutally beaten, spit on, mocked, and eventually hung on a Roman cross. But after three days, 
Jesus defeated death once and for all by raising from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. Fifth, mission. And church, this is where we're at right now in the storyline of Scripture. On earth as it is in heaven. Now, Paul is going to spend some time in the next section talking about mission. So I don't want to steal any of Mark's thunder. But Christ, the cornerstone, the stone stumbled over by the Jews, has become the cornerstone to his new temple. As Christians, we are this temple. The Holy Spirit dwelling in each of us. God, like in Eden, dwelling again with his people. Christianity is participation with God. And our job, expand Eden to the end of the earth. Expand this temple from Parker to Denver to the nations. Until finally, new creation. Though inaugurated now with his resurrection and with our new hearts, we live in the in-between. We long for his second coming when all things will be made new. And we will dwell with God on the redeemed earth in our redeemed bodies for all eternity. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. Listen to a quote as we close. It'll be up there as well. By Klein Snodgrass. What is the problem the gospel is intended to solve? It's a big question. What is the problem the gospel is intended to solve? It is intended to take you past yourself, your lack of purpose, your foolishness, and your destructive acts, and give you life, a life worth living. Something beyond the trivia, the self-centeredness, and the loss of life and entertainment and mere pleasure-seeking. The gospel is intended to redirect you, to give you life even in the midst of suffering and death. To give you hope beyond death and to hold out a vision of how wonderful life is and can be. It is intended to enable you to be truly human. A person empowered to be your real self. The kind of human God created you to be. This life worth everything is engaged with and participating in the life and purposes of God. Could you imagine R.P.? If we were a church that was captivated by the storyline of Scripture, that this was our vision of the good life, imagine what that would even look like. Imagine how that would impact our relationships, our families, our workplaces. What would that mean for our neighborhoods, our city? the nations. Let's pray. Oh God, the world wants to tell us what the good life is. And so we are tempted to anxiously check our investments and climb the ladder of career and buy bigger barns and cooler toys and live vicariously through our kids. Oh God, recalibrate 
our hearts, Lord, to your story. Help us to find ourselves in your great drama of redemption as we gaze our eyes on Christ, who is the telos, the end, the culmination of the law for righteousness for us who believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.